Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Homo Superior, the possibility that the human race will evolve or branch off and that a much superior human will be the result. My guest is my good friend Stefan Schwartz. He is the author of The Secret Vaults of Time, The Eight Laws of Change, The Alexandria Project, Opening to the Infinite, and a few novels as well. He also publishes The Daily Schwartz Report. Stefan is one of the founders of the discipline of remote viewing. He's been active in the field of parapsychology for half a century. Recently, he has been involved in a project using remote viewers to look into the future. And that's how our concern for the Homo Superior has evolved out of that work. Stefan lives up in the state of Washington, outside of Seattle. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Stefan. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, absolutely. Pleasure to be with you, Jeff. We've got a fascinating topic today, Homo Superior. It's a topic that you mentioned just in passing on the previous video we did about remote viewing the year 2060. But I can tell you that several people uh, have reached out to me and picked up on that comment and are very, very concerned about it. I think they should be. Uh, we have developed technologies which we have not really fully culturally integrated. Um, you know, the development of genetic engineering, uh, the CRISPR technologies, what's going on? Uh, there are several variations of this. One is the reality that particularly in countries which don't have the same moral objections that might arise here, although I'm not sure what will arise here now, um, this is going to be driven not so much by government, but by the market. Um, when you think about if you could arrange that your child would never get cancer, would never get heart disease, would never get diabetes, uh, wouldn't you do that if you had the money to do it? And of course, the, of course, the answer is yes, you would do it. And so as this develops, these technologies develop, I believe that, as I have said, we're going to uh, see the development of a second human, hominid species, uh, Homo superior, uh, because I believe that market forces, uh, particularly amongst the very rich, are going to be so powerful that um, it, the ability to order up a child that's as smart as Einstein and as athletic as Michael Jordan and as handsome as, you know, pick whatever your movie star is, uh, it's going to be irresistible. That's one part of it. The other part of it is the development of chimeras. That is the development of, I'm not even quite sure what to describe, species which are have had human uh, genes uh, engineered into them, at what point, for instance, would a primate who had been genetically engineered, say a chimpanzee who had been genetically engineered, become a human? Or um, could you create an army of soldiers who were genetically engineered to be very powerful, but not very bright and to follow orders? And I mean, a you, when you begin to think about this, you really see how dramatically this could alter a, a human culture, American culture particularly, but also culture around the world. You know, when we 
look at, for instance, the Chinese one-child policy. That's the a kind of exemplar that I would cite. In 19, whatever, 79, the Chinese decided that they would only allow families to have one child. And what happened was not at all what they thought was going to happen. For one thing, the development of sonograms, which made it, a poss- which made it possible to determine the, the uh, gender of the child, because Chinese culture is predisposed to support boys over girls, resulted in a uh, abortion of girls uh, and over the selection of boys to a point where by 2020, there were 40 million Chinese men who probably will never marry, will never have a child because there aren't enough women. And if we look at that as a kind of precursor of what might happen, what would happen if the very rich, who would be the ones who would get the first access, begin to develop very consciously a homo superior, that is, their children would not only not ever get any of these terminal diseases, but would also uh, be highly intelligent, athletic, whatever, and... um, and that it was gene lining, that is, it would pass on germ lining, uh, excuse me, germ lining, that, that would pass on from generation to generation. Very quickly, within a couple of generations, you would begin to have a, a thousands of people who were superior to the rest of the human race. And what would that be like? And what effect would that have on government? I mean, you can already see in the United States where you've got four guys who are running their own space program and one out of seven children in the United States can't, doesn't have enough to eat and can't get enough food. What happens when market forces, economic forces alter those kinds of things? I mean, the implications are very dire. Well, we've always had in our population today of over 7 billion humans on the planet, if you take... Almost eight. Almost eight. If you if you take the top uh, one thousandth of one percent, you're still talking about a very large number of people who are superior well, in any category you choose, athletically or intellectually or musically, or you could choose any category. You'll find yes. an elite. Okay, there are 2,700 billionaires globally. That's what I wanted to make sure that I, mm. I got correct for you. All right. So you got 2,700 people who have enough money to do essentially anything they want. And if those people chose that to have multiple children and all of their children were genetically engineered, what would we really be looking at? I mean, what kind of, of world would that be? I mean, 2,700 people who had, just say they had two children each, and each of those two children had two children, and each of those children had two children. Pretty soon you've got a homo superior population of several hundred thousand. Are the, what are they going to do? What, because conveying uh, protection genetically from diseases or making them highly intelligent does not make them moral. And so you'd have a population of people who, if greed and power were their major motivators, as is been true of most of human history? What kind of world would that be? And yet you don't see almost any conversation about this. Well, it's certainly been explored in in science fiction. In fact, the classic case would be the uh, Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan. Yes, or William Gibson got into this. Yes, exactly. It's been explored a little bit in in films and in and in novels. 
Well, let's talk for a moment about, based on what we know of gene splicing technology, how it might work. My understanding is one, they first have to determine which are the relevant genes, and then somehow they have to program those genes into a virus, and then they have to insert the virus in, into, an, let's say, an infant or a young person so that the virus infects every single cell of the body and implants the, this new genetic programming into each and every cell? Well, we know, for instance, um, that there have already been studies, uh, to give you an example, of research in which they um, have found that you can control the color of the skin through genetic manipulation. Now, what does that mean? How would that play out if you could, if people are fearful of the other and you could create, um, uh, if you could control, well, in fact, specifically, um, it, it's gene SLC24A5, um, if you could control the color of skin so that children could be made Caucasians, for instance, uh, black children or, or white children could be made black children. I mean, the, the, the thing that stays with me about all of this, and I first started writing about this in 2006 when I began to read the, the research literature on what was going on in CRISPR. I began, I, I, it got me thinking about this because the implications are so profound and because that you wouldn't have to get uh, that many people. And the other thing that really stood out for me was that a number of years ago, um, I had lunch or I had dinner with Arthur Kessler, uh, the writer, think into public intellectual in London. And we got to talking about UFOs which was something he was interested in. And I said to him, well, you know, what do you think the implications are? And he said, well, you know, I think about 40,000 years ago, maybe it's actually a little longer, but the point is still relevant. He said, I think there was perhaps genetic manipulation which allowed Neanderthal to emerge as homo, homo sapien. And that I never forgot that. And, and he said, you know, they changed the way uh, the, the high brain, the midbrain, and the reptilian brain operate together. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. And he said, you know, it really wouldn't take that many people. Because if you'd started with just a thousand people over a period of time, over a century, uh, you'd have a large number of people because of, you know, you'd have multiple generations. So I never forgot that. And then years later, again, over a lunch with uh, John Mack, who was doing all that research about abductees, uh, UFO abductees. And I, I told him this story about Kessler, who, by the way, Kessler later wrote this up in a book called Janus. Um, and I asked John about it. And he said, well, you know, that's very interesting because when I look at the abductee data, I am struck by the fact, I hadn't thought about this, but I'm struck by the fact that most or a high number of abductees report being probed genitally. And so is that UFOs looking, uh, trying to genetically alter us in some way that would produce uh, some difference, the emergence of a new species? I mean, there's no, I think it's pretty clear the reason we're having such a high increase in, in UFO encounters, people seeing them and describing them. I mean, it's astonishing the number of reports that are coming out is why are they looking at us? And I think the answer is they're behaving like cultural anthropologists. You know, if a cultural anthropologist go to some primitive tribe on an island, what do they do? They set up a camp. They don't intrude on the culture. 
They try to just observe its operation. They, they make contact with a, some small subset, usually a group of people who, who can inform them and they get information about the culture to see what's happening. Well, I would say to you that the same thing is going on now. That's why we're seeing so many of these UFO encounters, because no matter where you are, no matter what planet it was on, every species would develop, uh, that developed technology would reach a point where the technology was so powerful that it could either destroy the matrix of life of that planet or uh, could foster its well-being. And that is the really the critical existential turning point. And we are at that point. If you look at what's going on with climate change, if you look at what's going on with the changes in government, I mean, the United States trying to be, we have a one party that no longer supports democracy and is trying to create an anocracy. What does that represent? I mean, if I were an alien and I were looking at the humans on planet Earth, I would say these people are at the tipping point. They're either going to wake up to the fact that they live in a matrix of life and must foster well-being at every level, or they're going to continue on the road they're on now, uh, the plastics, the carbon, all that, and they're going to break down the ecosystems of the earth and destroy themselves. And it's, uh, you know, it's a kind of flip of a coin as to which is going to happen, and they're watching it. You can go back historically to a time when I think maybe 40, 50,000 years ago or so, there were two primary species of hominids on this planet. There was the Cro-Magnon, our ancestors, and as you mentioned, Neanderthals. Uh, the Neanderthals had larger brains. I gather they left all sorts of artifacts. They seemed to be uh, large, gentle uh, people, and they got wiped out. There are no more Neanderthals today. We are all basically the descendants of the Cro-Magnon ancestors. No, we also have, because there was interbreeding, there is, we also have, particularly in certain countries, a, a significant amount of Neanderthal genetic material in our heritage. We, we do indeed, especially Europeans. Uh, yes. how, however, uh, pure Neanderthals are gone. Yes, and the Denisovans are gone. So, yes, what happens when another superior species emerges? What happens? That's the issue. I, I mean, exactly. You've made the that's the historical reference point. We need to begin to think about what are technologies. This is really not just about genetic engineering. It's about how our technologies are developing and are they fostering well-being? Or are they creating the, the tools or the mechanisms by which we destroy ourselves? The point is, it's not just that we have the, the homo superior issue. We also have the chimera issue. We also have other technologies. We are at a, a place in our historical development as a species where choices that we are making are either going to destroy us or lead us into a whole new direction, a whole uh, different kinds of technologies where you only develop and, and finance technologies which foster well-being. So this is a much bigger, I mean, the homo superior issue is one piece of it, but it's only one piece because this is something that is going on across a spectrum of technologies. And the real issue with your idea of thinking aloud is why aren't we thinking aloud about this? Why don't we, why isn't anybody talking about it? Why don't you see this in the, in the general media? You can see it in the scientific literature and the ethicists that, for instance, in medicine are tearing their hair out 
because of this issue of how many human genes does it take to produce a human? When does a chimera become a human? You know, we're taking pig hearts to uh, try to do transplants into humans. What happens when you manipulate the, some animal because you want it to do a certain way? How does that all play out? We're not talking about it. And that is exactly, I think, what needs to happen. We need to be thinking aloud. We need to be having debates about this. We need to be thinking about how this is going to impact our political world. We need to begin to think about how this is going to impact us racially in terms of gender. I just, I, I just, it's, it really is. We're in a science fiction novel. Well, let's get into some of the uh, nitty-gritty about it. For example, if we look at the Neanderthals, uh, as you point out, most uh, Westerners, Europeans and Americans, people of European descent, have a certain percentage of Neanderthal genes, which means that at, at one time, uh, if if you define a species by meaning that they cannot interbreed with members outside of their species, it would seem that our Cro-Magnon ancestors and Neanderthals were, in effect, part of the same species. Okay. It's, and then, uh, as I understand speciation, uh, if a species population gets isolated for a while, uh, they're no longer able to interbreed like orangutans from different islands. Uh, become eventually they can become completely separate species. Yes, and when you are dealing with species which are capable of of producing high technology, where does that get you? You got twenty seven hundred billionaires, all of whom are going to be clamoring uh, immediately to have their children genetically engineered so that they don't. You know, they don't get any diseases and they're very smart and all that. I mean, that's inevitable because what the Chinese experience with uh, one child showed is that this is not ultimately driven as, uh, for instance, the Nazis thought with their their fantasy of creating the Aryan man. What actually happens in China and happening in India is that it's driven by the marketplace. That is, those people that can afford to do something that is beneficial will do it if they can get access to it. And so what happens when you have that kind of development? And again, because of germlining, it passes on from generation to generation. So over a period of a relatively short space of time, you would have radical changes that would occur in human civilizations. You know, I uh, we talked before about. Uh, I said that uh, on my 2060 project that that something happens between 2040 and 2045 that has a huge impact. Now, I, I, I'm not sure yet what it is. It might be the end of the internal combustion engine, which is most uh, of Europe and and uh, parts of Asia are already committed to they're going to they say we're going to get uh internal combustion engines off the roadways and we're going to convert to electric vehicles so that may be what it is it could be another pandemic i don't know yet or it could be that this crispr technology stuff starts faster than we had realized particularly in asia where they don't have the same, because it's they're not Christian cultures that have the kind of obsessive concerns that that, that that culture has, where people can get access to this, they're going to do it. And what does that mean? What what would it mean, for instance, to a country where you could breed a group of soldiers who could see? As, for instance, my cat sees uh, infrared light, and you could move in the and you could move in the night in a way that humans cannot presently do it. Just something as simple as that. Now, 
what would be the effect of having soldiers that could do that as opposed to soldiers who could not? Or suppose you were trying to solve some kind of technical problem and you had a cadre of, of young homo superiors and you trained them in the technology and they had IQs of 175 or something like that, you know, what would they develop? And what would happen to the people who didn't have access to that kind of development? I mean, are the countries which are less advanced technologically, are they going to become serfs to the others? Are they going to become the peasants of the homo superiors? I mean, if you look at human history, uh, we don't have a great track record when you look at what happens when one group of people gets so much power or so much uh, wealth that they just can overpower everybody else. I mean, look at the United States again. You know, we have uh, a, the largest wealth inequality in the world right now. So what happens if... Uh, Elon Musk, who likes to have lots of children, wants to have his children all be homo superior and can afford whatever it costs. Well, I imagine uh, that we're still a distance from being able uh, to do this. I've certainly heard a lot of scenarios where it ought to be possible, but things, and we've heard the same about artificial intelligence. 50 years ago, I was told we're on the brink of huge breakthroughs that have yet to occur. And I, I suspect along the way, we'll discover that there are all sorts of harmful byproducts. You, you think you're creating uh, an immunity, let's say, to a particular disease or greater intelligence or greater strength, but there are very likely going to be downsides to each of those modifications. I think you are completely correct, Jeff. In fact, that's what concerns me. These things have unintended consequences that nobody's considering. And so you go down a line, I mean, you know, in I first started writing about this this uh, genetic stuff, and as I said, in research in twenty six, uh, twenty oh six, uh, two thousand and six, um, and so you know that's a couple of decades now coming on, and look at how much we have advanced from from where we were in two thousand and six. Where will we be in 2040? Where will we be in 2060? You know, uh, at the rate things are developing, I think we're going to be much, much further along. And yes, I completely agree with you. I think you've made one of the relevant points in all of this, and that is there are going to be all kinds of unintended conse consequences which nobody is thinking about. On, on the other hand, we're also learning that we are capable of controlling our own genes and even the genes that we pass on to our descendants through, I would call it behavioral processes or even internal processes. Uh, uh, this has all been documented in the field of epigenetics. Yes, and it is very tempting I mean, you look again at the Nazis, the idea they didn't have the technology, but they certainly had the, the intention and the impulse to create this idea of the Aryan man. And they had a very specific idea of what that looked like and, you know, what, what skin color they had, what hair color. I mean, they went to great lengths to try to do it. They just didn't have the technology. So... If, if a nation which had the finances and the technological sophistication to do this held the same Hitlerian ideas that we saw back in the early 40s, what would be the outcome? That's the, that, I think, is the thing we need to leave with people. We, we need to begin talking about what are the implications of the technologies we have developed we are at this threshold, particularly the two that we're talking about today, which is Homo superior and what happens with the chimeras. I mean, you know, as we manipulate animals uh, to produce certain outcomes, 
how many genes does it take before you're a human? All of those things ought to be not only studied, but discussed, publicly debated, politically considered, because basically what we are doing now with the, the for instance, the the overthrow of Roe v. Wade and compelling women into a kind of subordinate position, how would that play out if you were trying to also control what kind of children were being born? I mean, clearly there is within the, the species of humans, there is a portion of people who power and 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 uh, wealth are the driving impulses and if they had the power to do this what would it look like what would happen what are the unintended consequences as you cite and i think we are not considering that and and this is part of the threshold that we are at and where are we going to go and what choices are we going to make? Let me return to epigenetics because I'm under the impression that the the major way we can uh, control our genes and the genes of our descendants is through lifestyle. People who practice a, a balanced lifestyle are going to have genes that reflect a uh, happier uh, personality, even a stronger, healthier personality, and that can be passed along. Uh, you don't need a lot of money necessarily to do that. It may well be that the uh, improvement of the gene pool will not uh, come from the elites. It may come from uh, people who are intellectually aware enough to uh, live healthier lifestyles. Absolutely. That's why I have told you in several of our interviews that we need to make the fostering of well-being, compassionate, life-affirming fostering of well-being, the priority for all decisions. You know, at the Free University in Amsterdam and at the University of Chicago, they looked at 8,000 identical and non-identical, non-identical twins And one of their conclusions was, to make the point you're making, was that genetics has a significant influence on loneliness and specific genes, and that people who have these genes are more likely to to have difficulties with loneliness and, and all of the things that flow out of that than people who don't. So exactly, over time, the choices that we make affect us genetically. We choose certain things. And so the question is, when are we going to wake up to the idea that it is in everybody's benefit, including yours, whoever you are, um, to foster well-being at every level from, uh, you know, from the microorganisms in the soil to the birds in the sky? When we foster well-being, we produce better results by any social outcome measure you like. I've been doing this research now for 30 years, and it's absolutely clear where that you choose to foster well-being, the social outcome data, maternal mortality, infant mortality, incarceration, obesity, heart disease. I mean... I, I just did a story in this morning's SR, Schwartz Report, showing that one of the problems the military in the United States is having is that a large percentage of the people that they would like to recruit are not physically robust enough to be able to serve because of the diet that most Americans eat and the problem and the problems with obesity and heart disease and type 2 diabetes and all that, that plague us because of the choices we make in the foods we eat. 
I was interestingly uh, recently reviewing an old video I made with Virginia Satir, who is one of the founders of the whole family therapy movement. And she made an interesting point. She said that the problem that humans have is not evil. What we think of as evil, uh, in her view, is simply that we have a lot of old habits that we seem unwilling or unable to change. Yes. Well, I think she's right. And, and so when you look at that and you realize, for instance, the attack on public education that is currently going on so that you don't want to educate children, you want to basically indoctrinate them. What is the effect of that going to be when you train children to make different kinds of choices and they're not choices that promote well-being? So then what happens? Uh, I, I, all of this stuff that that we're talking about and and that this your very excellent program emphasizes is that we need to begin thinking about and considering and deciding what choices we want to make not on the basis of will it make profit or you know will it give somebody power but will it foster well-being? Because if we don't make those choices, then the choices that we will make will end up destroying us. And I think that, I, you know, if you, had, if you and I had done this interview 10 years ago, or even maybe five years ago, and, 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 uh, and you had asked me, do you think it's really possible humanity could destroy itself? I would have said, oh, no, we'll work it out. It'll get sorted out. No, I'm not so sure now. I think uh, that what is happening in the world, this this obsession with power and wealth as opposed to well-being, is placing us in a condition where there is a very real possibility um, that we are going to destroy the matrix of life's the Earth's matrix of life, and as a result, we're going to, if not destroy ourselves reduce ourselves to something very different than what we currently enjoy. As I recall, Stefan, one of the characteristics that we discussed in our previous interview about 2060 is that people are no longer living in large cities. They're living in small communities. Uh, it does suggest that this event that takes place had a huge impact if, if people are no longer living in the, the big cities. And it, it also suggests to me maybe uh, the population is going to be dramatically thinned out for some reason. Yes. Well, I mean, to give you an example exactly of that point, Jeff, when I was part of the, you know, I was appointed to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Secretary of Defense Study Group on Innovation Technology in the Future. And there were a lot of futurists who were involved with this. And also, I was appointed to the Smithsonian study group on the same thing. And at that time, the obsession of futurists was overpopulation and insufficient resources. Those were the two big issues. And, you know, there was the famous $1,000 vote, a, a, a bet, which was based on the idea that we were overpopulation and, and insufficient resources was going to be the shaping form. It turns out none of that is true. Uh, we're not, I don't, nothing I see from the 2060s or the 2050s before them suggested overpopulation. Quite the contrary. They, as you say, they, they don't mention overpopulation. They don't seem to live in, in situations that are overpopulated. Um, and they, I have no one says to me, oh, we couldn't do something because we didn't have enough resources or we didn't have enough raw materials or whatever it is, um, to do it. And so all of that stuff that obsessed futurists in the seventies and eighties turns out not to be correct. And instead, what does seem to be an issue is choices about how we're going to deal with this the earth's matrix of life which at the time 
I mean, hardly anybody talked about it. When the Gaia, remember, you remember when the Gaia uh, hypothesis came out, I mean, it, it just was so radical. Uh, people could hardly take it aboard. Or when um, Chris Bird and Peter Tompkins wrote The Secret Life of Plants and The Secrets of the Soil and began uh, focusing on the microorganisms, for instance, in the soil, the farming, uh, the industrial chemical agriculture farming industries all dismissed that and poo-pooed it and, oh, you know, that's just nonsense. That's just woo-woo. Well, it turns out the microorganism issue in farming is a huge issue and it's going to have an enormous effect on the future. So I think the reason I, I, I did those future, I am doing those future projects, I didn't want to go too far into the future because I knew from other earlier research, when you get too far in the future, you don't understand what's what people are saying. So I didn't want to get too far ahead. But what I have come away with is that a number of the things we are obsessed with turn out not to be really very important. And other, I mean, for instance, the 2060s, when I talk to them about is racism still such an issue because it's become such a huge issue suddenly and in the last three or four or five years, is racism still a huge issue? And they all, to a person, say to me, race and gender are no longer issues. Well, that's not what you would have predicted um, if you, in what, 2016? You would have said, oh, no, racist, racial issues is, is a growing problem. and But apparently that gets resolved, and so does uh, gender equality get resolved. And, you know, right now we're in the throes of this enormous struggle about gender equality. So I think those are the good news things. Those are things which are going to get handled. I'm not sure how exactly, but they're no longer a big issue, whereas other things uh, I mean, climate change was the one that really caught my attention in the 2050 experiment, and it's become even stronger in the 2060 experiment because, you know, when I talk to them about cities which are along the coastline, they say, well, they're underwater. Or they talk about uh, the southwestern United States, for instance, and they say, well, not many people live there anymore because there's no water and it's too hot. So things that we hardly even considered when we looked at futurism in the past turn out to be incredibly important, and things which we thought were terribly important turn out not to be very important at all or get resolved. I mean, that might be the case in terms of the population. Uh, I remember the book, Paul Ehrlich's Population Bomb. It, it, yeah. it was very influential. And even today, I know many of the uh, water resource problems that we're having are a result of uh, overpopulation and the draining of the water tables. Yes, yes. Look at the Colorado River and all the states that are dependent on the Colorado River, Lake Mead, Lake Powell. And they're all suddenly faced with the fact there's not enough water. And so one of the reasons that when I get people to look at the future, they talk about smaller communities spread out, may be that they, that's how we resolve the issue of water, is that you don't pack so many people into a small space where they're consuming more water than can be uh, safely uh, made available. And so if that were true, then what would you do? Well, you'd spread people out because, you know, much of the United States, the population is, you know, I mean, look at uh, Montana, for instance, the, the population density of Montana compared to the population density of California. Um, I mean, that's a, it's so great that it is almost producing a different culture. And I think one of the things that I that I'm beginning to see in this research and the analysis of it is that people have made decisions. Uh, one of the other things, for instance, is uh, people don't seem to travel as much in the future as they do now, but they they stay in contact, um, highly in contact uh, all over the world because of um, sort of 
the mutation that's going to occur with the uh, the inter in internet and and electronic communications in general, that people seem to be able to operate and communicate. And if you look at what's going on in um, in cities like New York, where they're suddenly having office buildings that are being converted over to other things or have been restructured with different things because people prefer to work at home and are now able to do that. So when I read these descriptions of the future, what it begins to look like to me is that people are very active, they're, they're working very hard, but they are not concentrated into high-density uh, populations as has been previously necessary because they're able to make their contribution um, scattered all over the place because they can communicate. And I don't know, because the printers that we then have in the future that can print things out uh, the, in ways that they can't now, all that sort of stuff. You can see that in the, in how uh, printers are being able to develop and, and print all sorts of things, physical objects. So maybe that lies with the future. But what is clear to me is we are in the future going to be, um, th th they describe themselves as being reasonably happy. That's the good news. I don't see descriptions of, of nuclear war. That's the good news. I don't see, uh, I, I see healthcare as being much more involved with not only holistic health, but what I suspect is also this gene lining business where, where diseases have been dealt with in a completely different way than, than medications, for instance, that some sort of manipulation is occurring. I think that's the good news. So, I mean, there is good news. Um, but it is a dramatically different culture than the culture of 2022. And for all we know, the population, uh, because of some intervening event, has been greatly reduced. Well, no one, I, I don't have a single person who talks to me about overpopulation. Yeah. It's just not an issue. But when I say to them, well, is overpopulation an issue where you are? And, and they say no. So, yes, something has happened to reduce population. It also could be, I mean, you see, when you begin to look at these general meta events like lower population, then you also have to look at, well, how do we get there? Well, one thing is that the fertility rate of, of men's semen in the United States is greatly reduced. It's harder to have children. People are choosing not to have as many children or to have children later in life. So those become factors. You look at what happened in China and India when they tried to, to uh, control population and people made gender choices. Um, so there are, that's what I'm saying about this thinking aloud idea. We need to think of these things not as they get presented in a science fiction novel where the population is much smaller, but you don't get into the weeds of how it got to be smaller. We need to get into the weeds. We need to understand what are the factors that could possibly affect that. I mean, climate change is one. Genetic engineering, that's two. Um, decreased uh, fertility, that's three. Uh, choices. As to gender, that's four. I mean, you have a whole series of factors that don't get thought of as the contributors to the larger trend. They, they just talk about the larger trend, but not how we got there in the first place. And what I'm suggesting and what I'm hoping is going to happen and what I'm very glad to be doing with you, these conversations with you, is that we need to begin to think about what are the small things that are happening, those individual choices, because when you look at how social transformation occurs, what you see is it gets down to individual choice. 
And I mean, if, if you look, just take cigarettes as an example, when you and I were boys, uh, everybody smoked. You went to somebody's house. There was a, there were ashtrays in the living room um, that were cigarette lighters, cigarettes on the on the table. You don't see any of that anymore. And why is that? Did somebody pass a law that you couldn't do it? No, it's because individuals made individual choices, and that I think is part of what's driving all of this. But let me go back to the question of homo superior, because as I okay. think about it, it does seem to me that uh, the Neanderthals, uh, although they something drove them to extinction, it might not be that they were inferior. In fact, uh, it may simply be a question, uh, since they did have, I understand, larger brains than uh, modern humans have today, it might be that it's simply that we're more aggressive. And I'm also thinking of uh, the Inca culture, how the Spanish came in and destroyed the Inca culture, but the Incas had superior architecture and, and stonework. If you see the Spanish churches built on top of Inca temples, you'll know right away the Spanish uh, methods of construction were inferior, and yet they were more aggressive. The Incas let them right into the uh, head, head of the uh, empire, uh, a handful of men who, who took over because the Incas were unsuspecting. Yes, you have. Now, this is the kind of thinking that needs to happen, because you're absolutely correct. How were the Incas so destroyed so quickly, even though in many ways they had a much more advanced agricultural system, they, their, their construction techniques were more advanced, this business of aggression. Yes. How do we deal with that? That's how do we deal with the apparently inbred uh, aggression that so many humans have? What is going to happen unless we deal with that issue? That is precisely the point, because you could very well be right. The, the Neanderthal were simply destroyed uh, because they just were not aggressive enough and they didn't organize aggressively enough. That, I think, these are the kind of questions that I think we need to be looking at because the, again, because of these unintended consequences that will inevitably occur. So, okay, you create a group of a homo superior and, and you, so you now have two hominid species. And, and with the current aggression level and the desire for power and wealth, the homo superior driven by that aggression, what happens to homo sapien? Not clear. Who knows which way it'll prevail. And another thought I have about this, Stefan, being Jewish, and I know you have some Jewish heritage as well, uh, I'm aware of the fact that uh, when populations are measured for IQ, Ashkenazi Jews typically come out at the very top and Sephardic Jews not far behind. And yet for centuries, various uh population groups have endeavored to wipe out the Jews. And there are theorists who say that the high IQ in the Jewish population is a result of uh, these pogroms against uh, the Jewish people, because those with higher intelligence are the ones who manage to escape. Well, uh, that, this absolutely, this is, a, um, I mean, I'm not Jewish, but I do have some, in my background, I do have some Jewish heritage. Um, but mostly when I think about this as an example, look at the Nobel Prize. I think it's 21% of the Nobels. The largest group of Nobel Prize winners are Jews. Um, very few people seem to know that. Because why is that? Now let's think about that for a minute. It was because the Jews were not allowed to own land and they were not allowed to enter in, no matter their wealth, into the power structure, royalty power structure of that period. And so what did they do? 
They chose to be able to move around, so they became traders, so that they because they couldn't own land, they could but they could move around. They became traders, and because being a trader required careful thought, they began selecting uh, children. You know, girls would select boys for husbands, or boys would select girls that were highly intelligent because they literally altered their genetic structure and it becomes manifest in the Nobel Prize winners. So what we don't seem to understand or really calibrate for is that we are making individual choices. That's this point I keep emphasizing. We are making individual choices about things that are producing unintended consequences that may be helpful, maybe good consequences. That is, it's good to have intelligent people, but it's not, it, it, it occurred because the Jews were made, were ostracized and were not allowed to integrate into the Christian cultures. And so in order to continue, how are they going to get along? They developed and made choices, individual choices, that that they were able to do. They became traders and bankers uh, because that was that you could that was portable and you could take it around. And intelligence as a thing became very important. You can see the same thing, by the way, in the Asian cultures. If you look, for, I mean, just as an example, every doctor that my wife and I go to in Seattle, Washington, is an Asian. And, and we go to the leading doctors. I do a search before I go to any to any specialist. Who is the best specialist in in Seattle on that subject, whatever it is? And it turns out they're Asians. And if you look at these advanced education classes that they're holding in schools, what you find out is that the students in the advanced classes are significantly more either Jews or Asians, because those two cultures put great emphasis on intellectual uh, uh, ability, and therefore families choose, train their children to choose to be attracted to people who will make that connection. And over time, it literally alters the genetic makeup of those subpopulations. Let me uh, shift the conversation just a little bit, because I know there's been some discussion along the lines of Homo Superior, but it would be, can we find a, a genetic component for enlightenment? And I know that our mutual friend, Dean Radin, is very interested in this and is affiliated with a, uh, a corporation that is interested in developing uh, genetic engineering techniques to, to support uh, spiritual enlightenment yes well if you look at if you look at the remote viewing research what you see is that um, remote viewers who meditate do significantly do better than remote viewers who don't meditate because the key to opening to non-local consciousness is the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. And meditation is specifically about teaching you how to do that. I mean, whatever technique, there are many techniques for doing it. But the, in all cases, the point is, if you learn to meditate, you allow the the, the stimulation of your uh, neuroanatomy, it's hot, it's cold, it's dark, it's, it's, uh, smells bad, it smells good, all that. You allow that to slide into the background and you open to this non-local aspect of consciousness. So if we could train and, and, uh, and there are examples of this, if we trained all of our school children starting at about the third grade to in meditation techniques, what would that do? To, how, what kind of individuals would arise from that? Well, we have some data. And as you know, I'm a data person. 
in San Francisco, they started a, a program to teach people in the most violent schools to meditate. And they had a period every day to, to where they would meditate together, not in a religious sense, but just a sort of um, mindfulness sense. And these were children who um, overwhelmingly had either had an experience with personal violence or some member of their family had had a, a, an experience of personal violence where they had been shot or knifed or something. And so these were kids who who were traumatized by by violence in their in their uh, environment, who mostly came out of uh, poverty, who came out of insecurity because their parents didn't have steady jobs, well, all of those things, right? And therefore, most of these kids, or a large number, not I can't remember the exact percentage, but a large percentage of these kids never completed school. They never completed high school. They would drop out because they would be drawn into gangs or they would be drawn into some circumstance that, that uh, caused them to find school uninteresting or so they started this program to teach these kids to meditate in a mindfulness way. What happened? Very interesting. What happened was someone came along after they had done it for a while and tried to stop it, and the students rebelled and, and demanded that they go back to doing it. The dropout rate dropped like a rock. That is, most kids began to fully complete high school. Violence in the school decreased significantly. Their families began to function better as families because this child was meditating and was responding to the stresses of the family differently, and that was affecting the other members of the family. So in every uh, by every social measure you could take, uh, they were healthier, they got finished their education, they were involved with less violence, um, they uh, helped other people, they became more compassionate in general. All of that just because they began to teach kids to meditate. So what would happen if non-religious mindfulness meditation were part of every school child in America uh, experience where we became a nation of meditators. Would that evolve the, would that create a genetic change as well? Um, would we value people differently? Would you look at people who were, who were more enlightened? Um, would you give them a particular importance that you would otherwise have given in an earlier age to someone who was the richest, for instance, all of those things. And again, it gets down to individual choices. So will we as a culture make the decisions we need to make to foster well-being? They're not complicated. They don't require money. That isn't the issue. It's a matter of changing the things which are important to you. And if it's important to you to foster well-being, to be compassionate, to be life-affirming, if you create that kind of culture, what would America look like? And it would be a very different world than the world we live in today. And it gets down to, I mean, I, this is, I can tell you how we can do it every day. Every one of us makes hundreds of little decisions. We choose the, the things that we buy. We choose the places we go to. We choose the restaurants, the movie theater, whatever. If every day and you, as you face those choices, you commit yourself to only making that option choice of the options available to you, which in your view is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, and you tell 10 people that you are doing this as a discipline and invite them to join you and get 10 of their friends, by the time this interview is a year old, 
we could change the course of American history. A much better idea than genetic engineering, in my opinion. Well, it would produce genetic engineering. Stefan Schwartz, this has been a fascinating, enlightening conversation. I know we could go on for a long time, but I think we've kind of covered the basics here. The likelihood that the mass of humans develops into, as a whole, a, a superior species could occur, as you point out, through the daily choices that we all make. Yes. And the question is, as you who are watching this interview at this moment, are you prepared to do that? Because it's you who are going to make the effect. Well, I'm delighted to have had this time with you. I know we've got a live stream event coming up soon. Uh, if, of course, if people are watching this in uh, the more distant future, the live stream event will have already been recorded and in our archives. Stefan, thank you so much for being with me today. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, Jeff. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.